0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
1: The person who has NPD, not just narcissistic traits, but a full-blown narcissist, their addiction to narcissistic supply is not necessarily to gain positive feedback. It's to have a complete power and control over others. That
2: was Dr. Abigail Lev on Psychologists Off the Clock.
3: We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting edge, integrative, and evidence based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health.
2: I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock.
3: Debbie, your interview today was a fascinating one because I think we've all experienced being in a relationship with somebody that is narcissistic or experienced narcissism to one degree or another, and we can't quite put our finger on why it's so frustrating or even how we should respond when we're interacting with somebody that's struggling with narcissism.
2: That's right. It was really eye-opening to me, I think, to look at it in this way. Narcissism is something that is very complicated and sometimes it's really elusive. We just know something's not quite right, but we're not really sure what it is. The actual definition of narcissism is basically that it's just people who are kind of have an inflated sense of their own importance, who like a lot of attention and likely lack empathy for other people. And Diane, I think you pulled up the actual criteria from our diagnostic manual, the DSM-5.
3: Yeah, so the DSM is the diagnostic manual that someone would sit down and and give you a diagnosis of narcissistic personality if you were in their office. You'd have to meet some of these five of nine criteria. And when you look at them, it does paint a picture, I think. Uh, So somebody that has a grandiose sense of self-importance, they're really preoccupied with this fantasy of unlimited success and power and beauty. Uh, They believe that they're special and they only want to relate to, or they feel like they can only be understood by other people that are high status. Uh, They need this. They're very hungry for excessive admiration and they have a sense of entitlement. They're often exploitive interpersonally. So they use people to kind of step on to get themselves elevated They lack empathy and they envy others or they believe that others are envious of them. That one's particularly kind of uh, frustrating, I think. Uh, And we've seen that. And certainly you see this in political figures or people of power. Sometimes you have that element. And then they demonstrate arrogance and haughty behaviors or attitudes. So that's the DSM picture. But what Robin, Dr. Robin Wasler, and Dr. Abigail Lev do in this interview is they talk about more of the intricacies of narcissism and also the real dimensional nature of it. So it can go all the way to the extreme of being a sociopath, but also more, you know, more in the middle of just being a frustrating person to interact with. And that can feel manipulative or like they're stepping on you or not caring about you. And then at the other end of the dimension is that we all, I think, possess a mild amount of narcissism, right? So even when you're listening to this interview, you may think about, yeah, sometimes I've done that. I'm trying to push other people's buttons to get what I've wanted from them.
2: Right. And it's not necessarily bad to have a touch of narcissism. There's a term, sort of a healthy narcissism. It's when mm-hmm. it gets to this extreme place where it's really impacting relationships, making it hard for people to around you, where it's really extreme, right? And that's when it becomes more of a personality disorder. And, What's interesting about it, I think, is that it can be very hard to treat. They, they mentioned in this episode that it's really not egotistonic. And what that means is that for the person who has narcissism, there's no distress, right? There's no actual conflict between the way that they see themselves and the way that they're presenting in the world, that everything seems fine to them. And we talk a bit about it in this episode, but we often see it showing up in different ways as a big problem for people.
3: Oftentimes when people come in, so this concept of ego syntonic, they come in for, for treatment or for therapy, not because of narcissism, but because they're recognizing that relationships, they just can't get people to um, do what they want in relationships. They're frustrated with other people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, I don't get it. Like everyone, Everyone else is not meeting my demands. And doesn't cooperate with me, and so the the, the interpersonal distress definitely sh- shows up in narciss people with narcissism. But like you said, the egocentric mm-hmm. means it, it fits their beliefs about them themselves. The narcissism and other. Uh, other disorders where you see this is something like an eating disorder, where it's actually really egosyntonic. People with anorexia want to feel overly skinny, want to feel thin, and 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 believe that it's working for them often in some way. So that's another example of the egosyntonic versus egodystonic behavior. Somebody that um, really troubling to me that I'm having this experience.
2: Right. So there's no real distress around it, I think, which yeah. is what we often find, and yet. There's a lot of times when when they will show up in your office if you're a therapist or where you'll find yourself having relationships with people. I think even if you're not a therapist, you'll find something in this episode where you're like, yeah, that sounds familiar. I know yeah. someone like that or I've had that same interaction. And, and I think what I love about it, talking to these two experts in this area is that it's shedding a light on something that is so complicated and confusing. It's really helpful.
3: Mm-hmm. And they give you some tools and ways to... Uh, interact with somebody that is um, narcissistic that could be really helpful. Really kind of simple concrete tools that you could use.
2: Absolutely. Well, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Both of our guests today are returning. We've had Abigail on before episode 61, which was about relationships and schema therapy. And Robin was on for episode 49 about empowering women. So welcome. I'm so happy to have you both back. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be back. Well, let me start by introducing you. Dr. Abigail Lev, or Abby, is a psychotherapist, author, and executive coach in the Bay Area, She's the director of the Bay Area CBT Center, a clinic in San Francisco and Oakland that provides cognitive behavioral therapy for individuals and couples. She specializes in integrating acceptance and commitment therapy and schema therapy and has co-authored three books on strengthening relationships, including Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Interpersonal Problems, the Interpersonal Problems Workbook, and Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Couples. She has presented her research at national and international conferences, and provides consultation, trainings, and workshops on utilizing evidence-based treatments. Dr. Robin Walzer is staff at the National Center for PTSD and co-director of the Bay Area Trauma Recovery Center and is assistant clinical professor at the University of California, Berkeley. As a licensed clinical psychologist, she maintains an international training, consulting, and therapy practice. Dr. Walzer is an expert on acceptance and commitment therapy and has co-authored five books on ACT. Her next book, The Heart of ACT, will be released this fall. Together, Abby and Robin are offering an online training on August 18th on treating victims of narcissistic abuse, and you can hear more details about that at the end of the episode. Okay, well, let's dive in. And I just really want to start by finding out what exactly is narcissism? I'm not sure if this is the case, but I, sometimes I wonder, like, do you know it if you see it, or is there more to it? How would you, how would you start defining narcissism? Well,
1: the dilemma that we have with narcissism, and uh, I would say with most personality disorders, maybe all of them, is that um, the, the DSM is not the best... Uh, It doesn't have the best criteria for uh, diagnosing these. Uh, Mainly, I believe, because these personality disorders are egocentronic. They're not egodystonic like other disorders. And therefore, a, a subjective experience of it is not as accurate as diagnosing it through behaviors. We could look at the diagnostic criteria for narcissism but that is not as helpful as thinking about the behavioral strategies that they use. And
0: I would also add that you don't always know when you're interacting with a narcissist. Uh, They can be charming, they can be fun, uh, they can seem interested, and sometimes you don't, interested in you, sometimes you don't find out until a bit later that there's a narcissistic person uh, sitting in front of you, and when you start to um, feel doubt, unsure, manipulated maybe like things are not um, uh, like you're feeling a bit crazy, knocked off your feet, you're un- like lots of different things can happen when you begin to recognize that somebody is a narcissist, and so it's not always easy to see, tell that someone sitting in front of you it, uh, has a narcissistic
1: personality. Uh, would you add to that, Abby? Yeah, I think that uh, narcissistic personality disorder is very misunderstood in our field in general. And so there there's a lot of different kinds of narcissists. There are cerebral narcissists there are somatic narcissists there are malignant narcissists and they seem different underneath it they're all similar but they appear rather differently so for example the the covert narcissist the more vulnerable narcissist actually doesn't come across as uh, haughty or arrogant they may even seem shy right or vulnerable but underneath it uh, it's the same underlying issues
2: so in fact, you don't always know it when you see it, it sounds like. And in fact, as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, I can kind of think of some examples of these, but
0: yeah, and uh, like that, I like the um, difference between the cerebral and the somatic. So the cerebral narcissist thinks they're very smart, very intelligent, that they're smarter than other people, they're above other people psycho- psychologically or in terms of how they think about things, whereas the somatic narcissist is interested in their body and uh you know somebody that you might find at the gym all the time and very interested in appearances so there's uh uh, different types and i think being able to know which one isn't always that easy one of the things that i'm appreciating about abby is she and i are developing this webinar together is her level of knowledge around all these different layers and the complexity of um, understanding what narcissism is and how it works uh, in terms of relating to folks who have this particular disorder.
2: So the one that I was thinking of is just this really over-the-top, very overt narcissist, but that's only one type of narcissist. And it sounds like, am I right that some of the other types might be a little more hard to spot? Right. The,
1: the overt or what we would call a grandiose narcissist is the one that seems more arrogant and seems um, kind of like they think highly of themselves. Whereas the covert narcissist or an, a, another word for it is the vulnerable narcissist, uh, they may actually come across more as the victim, um, as shy, as a, a lot of shame and insecurity. Uh, but both narcissists have grandiosity. So uh, underneath it, um, and behaviorally, they do look the same over time.
2: Now, Abby, what are some of the core beliefs or schemas that are connected to narcissism?
1: Uh, The main schemas are entitlement, grandiosity, defectiveness, shame, uh, mistrust, abuse. And then also there are narcissists that are a little bit more on the dependency side of things. So there's a more dependent narcissist. And there are also the narcissists that that many narcissists are actually very afraid of abandonment as well. If we're thinking about it as narcissism on a spectrum, because everything is on a spectrum, like from zero to 100, where somebody, you know, a zero has zero empathy, um, and somebody at 100 is hyper empathic, um, there's a different spectrum of, of narcissism. So somebody that scores high, for example, on the schema questionnaire, entitlement isn't necessarily a full-blown narcissist. And then if you score highly on all of the schemas, uh, then you're thinking more that there might be a personality disorder there, Uh, especially if the top three or four schemas are entitlement, defectiveness, shame, mistrust, abuse, and dependence. So those are like the the triad of of narcissistic personality disorder. And the higher that you get on the spectrum, uh, the the more dangerous they are. So the somatic narcissist, uh, all narcissists are addicts. They're addicted to narcissistic supply. The somatic narcissist uh, attempts to get narcissistic supply more through his or her body and sexuality as opposed to the cerebral narcissist who attempts to gain a narcissistic supply through their intelligence. Uh, and then we also have the overt narcissist, who more, seems more grandiose. And then we have the covert narcissist. Uh, what's very interesting is that studies show, actually, that covert narcissists actually are less empathic than grandiose narcissists. So it's very interesting to think about. You might put covert narcissists on higher on the spectrum than overt narcissists in lack of empathy. And then when you get higher on the spectrum, then you have the malignant narcissist. And the malignant narcissist, I mean, I guess we could say in some way all narcissism is kind of malignant. Um... But Kernberg described the term malignant narcissist as a person who has a severe NPD, uh, narcissistic personality disorder, plus antisocial features, paranoid traits, and uh, aggression, uh, sadism. So uh, I use the term malignant narcissist and a sociopath interchangeably. Interesting. So malignant narcissists uh, and sociopaths are basically interchangeable, and the one that comes after that is a psychopath.
2: Okay. So different forms and also a spectrum, it sounds like. Robin, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry.
0: I was just going to add, we've used the terms narcissistic supply, and I thought it might just be useful to say what we mean by that as well for the listeners, some may be able to intuit what it's about, but essentially it's the need to seek you know a constant interest from others, and you want them to supply you, if you're a narcissist, with ad- adulation, recognition, um, interest, sort of a constant feeding of that uh, narcissistic or a need to control and be in power. So that's what we mean when we say narcissistic supply.
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, I'd like to say a little bit more because I think that there is a big misconception or misunderstanding in our field about what narcissistic supply actually uh, consists of. And I think it does us a disservice when we think that it's just about getting positive feedback, like adulation and adoration and... Right, compliments. Actually, um, the person who has NPD, not just narcissistic traits, but a full blown narcissist, um, uh, their addiction to narcissistic supply is not necessarily to gain um, positive feedback, it's to have complete power and control over others. It's to make the universe and, and, and the external world predictable. So, they, they actually would prefer even negative feedback. They'd prefer to see you cry and scream and, and, and beg and go mad than to be complimented. Um, it, it's almost like uh, a kind of remote control. They have this remote, and there's a certain button that they could press, and they want to know that as long as they press this button, it gets a specific reaction. If they guilt trip you, you say you're sorry. If they threaten to leave you, you do what they want. If they attack you, you get scared and confused and give in, but the idea is that they need you to be in, they need to feel powerful and they need to feel in control of everything in their environment.
2: Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. I didn't, I didn't know that. And that's really helpful to think about it in that way. It's a lot more about the power.
1: It, it's a very important distinction. They do not need praise necessarily. They just need the button that they have conditioned you to be pressed and respond in a certain way to continue working in the way that they've conditioned it.
0: I can give you an example of a client where the um, wife caught the husband having an affair and he has now made it so that he looks like the victim in it. And she is feeling guilt now because he is crying so much and saying how much pain he's in. And so it's become about him. But the, the point here is, is that his behavior is about getting back in control because she has threatened to leave him. And so now he's the victim, although she, he's the one who had the affair. Now she feels guilty as a result of um, his painful emotion that he's demonstrating. So he looks like he's in pain but he's really in the process of getting back in control. Does that make
1: sense? Yes, that was a a great example. I think when we understand a little bit about how narcissists think, we could understand why their need for control is so important. Um, Narcissists think completely, radically differently from us. Um, And so they view everybody in the world as an extension of themselves. So you could imagine, for example, if you want to drink your coffee and you're trying to move your hand to pick up the coffee and your hand doesn't Um, right, participate, right? You're trying to get your hand to get the coffee. And if your hand doesn't work, you feel helpless and you feel so out of control and so powerless and and dependent and lost. And that is how the narcissist feels. Uh, Everybody outside of themselves is an extension of themselves. If they press the button and you don't respond as they want, if their appliances don't respond in a predictable way, they feel very out of control and powerless. And so this is their defense mechanism to remain in control in an unpredictable world.
2: Do you think that it's a defense mechanism in general? I've heard this theory, and I'm just curious, that deep down inside when someone's highly narcissistic, that they're actually very vulnerable, maybe have a lot of self-hatred and shame, and that this this happens as a way to sort of defend against that? Is there any evidence to support that?
1: So this is a very uh, complicated question, and let's see if I could uh, answer it in a way that you tell me if this uh, makes sense. But narcissism is both an entitlement disorder and a shame disorder. Mm. Uh, narcissists are like a walking contradiction. So on one level, um, it is a defense mechanism. Their grandiosity is a defense for uh, feelings of feelings that they've split from themselves, that they can't tolerate, feeling powerless, impotent, helpless, out of control, independent—they're actually extremely dependent on the external world, even on objects, right? Even on their pair of pants or their car, they're literally dependent on all of these things, um, and so they can't—they they can't stand this piece of of themselves. Um, and, and, and not being this perfect, ideal object as they see themselves. And so they develop a certain grandiosity, a grandiosity um, that helps them cope with it. But narcissists oscillate. They, they, they oscillate from deep feelings of shame around needing others, right, or around needing, feeling completely powerless. And there's moments of narcissistic injuries that show them their own grandiosity gap, which brings up a lot of shame. So the narcissist is an addict. They're an addict of needing complete control all the time. And they also feel really angry and ashamed. It's like they have this person who who they see as an extension of themselves. And this person's kind of like their appliance who should be, when they're pressing those buttons, that person should respond in the way that they want them to. And in moments where the reality shows them otherwise, they feel extremely powerless, needy, and out of control. And so all of their mechanisms, their behaviors, and their cognitive distortions are there to um, continue the process of getting this narcissistic supply, continuing to maintain control so that they can continue their, their imagined grandiosity. But it's very fragile. It's a very fragile grandiosity. Th- Does
2: that make yeah, sense? so that, that idea of sort of the fragile ego, that's kind of a, a, a thing that really happens.
0: Well, I can give you another, uh, just another clinical, a short clinical example where I worked with a gentleman who wanted to um, be in relationship with um, a woman. He wanted to find a partner. And again and again and again, he would go on dates and they would disappoint him. They wouldn't go, he wouldn't go out on a second date with them. And he was looking for somebody who would take care of him continuously uh, and who was always there to um, serve his needs. And when I sort of got behind it from time to time and it was hard to do, there was this deep insecurity that he actually didn't deserve that kind of um, re- response from other women. But you could only see it every now and then, and then he'd get ashamed and defensive again and angry and leave the session. And so they sort of vacillate between those two places.
1: With the uh, covert narcissist, with the vulnerable narcissist, the the shame is a lot a lot easier to get in touch with, uh, whereas with a grandiose overt narcissist, um, their defenses, their grandiosity defenses, are stronger. Okay.
0: By if the way, uh, uh, Debbie, you know I, I've, you know I, probably we all have had at times in our lives when we've encountered a narcissist, or there's a narcissist in the family, or we've dated a narcissist, or we've had a friend as a narcissist. You know, there's. And we can get a sense of it, a little, you know, we can intuit that something's off. But part of what starts to happen for folks is that, you know, they have self doubt and they feel a little crazy or they're unsure around the narcissist because they're so um, good at um, setting you on your heels or throwing you off in terms of the way uh, their behavior is manifested. And so, um, I was just thinking, like, as we're looking at, you know, overt and covert and all of the different types, one of the things that Abby said earlier is that regardless of the different uh, types that we're talking about right now, when you look underneath and boil it down, they're engaging in some of the same behaviors that make people feel crazy.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think maybe if you've had relationship with someone with these traits you know, a partner or something like that. Looking back on it, you can say, "Oh, yes, that makes a lot of sense." But at the time, it might be a lot more confusing than that. I'd like
1: to piggyback on what Robin just said because their main behavioral coping mechanisms are actually uh, they they function in order to produce confusion, right? So um, what Robin was uh, discussing, which she was identifying, is kind of the process of gaslighting. So one thing that we'll be talking about in our webinar is gaslighting behaviors, what they look like, how to recognize them and identify them. Um, It includes things like blame shifting, projecting, denying, lying, or if you've ever heard of the term DARVO, uh, DARVO is what usually accusers do when they are guilty. And DARVO looks like deny, attack, reverse victim, offender. And all of these strategies are a part of gaslighting. And gaslighting is several different behaviors that people with this personality disorder engage in to keep their victim doubting themselves, doubting their own perception of reality, uh, being really confused um, and the more confused the victim is and the more guilt and shame the victim feels the more the more easier they are to control uh, they are paralyzed their cognitive dissonance grows and grows and grows and doesn't allow them to take effective uh, strategies to take effective steps of action to take care of themselves gaslighting for example triangulating turning people against you saying i never said that that never happened all of these strategies uh, leads the victim to doubt their own perception of reality and it makes them easier to control. Again, it's all for the purpose of uh, having complete power.
0: Well, and the, the term itself, I think, is kind of fascinating and tells the story of it. Like, um, It comes from a stage play called Gaslight that actually was uh, turned into a film like in the early 40s. And essentially it's about a husband who starts manipulating his wife's environment to make her look insane. And, um, so he's manipulating, for instance, the lights, which are gas lights. He's turning them up and down and telling her that it's not happening. And so essentially he's lying to her and trying to convince her that she's not seeing what she's seeing. And, uh, The term is based on that particular movie and it's sort of the art of deception in terms of uh, the behavior of the narcissist is um, deceiving you or telling you things in such a way as you start to doubt your own sense
2: of reality and
0: sense of what's happening.
2: No wonder it feels so confusing to be in a relationship with someone like this. It's
0: really, <laughs> right, it's really hard. Oh, no right. doubt. For, for instance, I was um, in an interaction with a narcissistic person once who denied that things had happened between us. And it's interesting because, you know, I can go back and look at some of the written things that I had and some of the kind of interesting Dynamics between the two of us, and I started to doubt myself for as grounded and, and as centered as I might be, as much mindfulness as I might do. Like, I was starting to think, Am I, do I not understand this? Am I, is there something that I'm doing wrong? Like, I was truly starting to look at my own behavior as um, maybe not right. But now that I've got, you know, a little tiny bit of distance and I know more about it, I can see exactly the kinds of things that the person was doing to keep himself in power, to stay in control, and to make me feel as if I didn't know what I was talking about.
2: So if you're going to interact with a narcissist, you want to do it in writing, so you can go back and fact check.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because even in the writing, you they're they're they find ways to turn it back on you yeah like you misunderstood yeah. my writing you're not smart enough to know what I'm saying in my writing you know oh you're using the writing against me why would you try to harm me that way like they'll turn it on you even if it's in even even if it's on writing they'll turn it on you and make it look like you've done something wrong
2: oh yeah they will, they will
1: continue their gaslighting even when you're tracking and monitoring everything, but it is incredibly important to be tracking and monitoring everything and being really clear on what reality is and what has been said and done for the victim to continue to uh, practice self-care and, and, and combating uh, gaslighting. Um, I think also um, I have a, a, a very interesting uh, client That really um, is a great example of this. I think what's important to remember about this is that victims of narcissistic abuse could come into the therapy room looking quite crazy. They might actually seem like the narcissist themselves. They might seem schizophrenic. They might seem psychotic. And so you really want to be evaluating what's going on with this person. And with this particular client that I had, she uh, came across as quite psychotic. Uh, she came in telling me that people are listening to her phones, that everybody at the Apple store and the AT&T store can, uh, is, you know, is tapping into her phone and her computer and everybody's listening in. And I literally had to do an assessment between whether she's psychotic or whether she is you know, a victim of gaslighting. Mm. And very interesting about it is we, we brought her partner in and, um, You know, as we talked about it, um, I I sent her to the store by herself to go change her phones and everything. And her partner tried to convince me to hospitalize her. Uh, And luckily, but he did convince me that she was trying to convince me that she was crazy, that she was psychotic, that she needs to be hospitalized. I had to be very firm and tell him that she's going to be staying in a hotel room that night and kind of taking it easy and eating and taking care of herself. And what was very interesting about it is that later we did find out that this person actually did tap into her phone, her computer, uh, everything was hacked. And so her partner, uh, he even had like a, Uh, Hacked her car meaning. He was tracking uh, where she was going Uh, Everything was was hacked is what she found out later. So it's true (laughs) Right, right. What's interesting is that when something so extreme uh, like that is happening to the victim uh, They don't know what's real and what isn't anymore and they do appear uh, uh, Like they're going crazy uh, I've had victims convince me, for example, that they're narcissists or they're borderline or they're completely psychotic. And we have to do a very thorough assessment before reaching those
2: conclusions. That's really sad to think of that, that that's how people come across and that's that's how they're labeled in situations like that. One important distinction about narcissists
1: um, is that narcissists are very high on uh, like cognitive empathy or cold empathy uh, But they don't they don't they're not high on warm empathy uh, Meaning that they understand the perception of the other they could take the other's perspective uh, But they don't feel it affectively. They they feel it intellectually. They, they understand it intellectually But they don't feel it and so the narcissist engages if it's like we we think that we understand what we're having a conversation with a narcissist about. Like for example, we think that we are negotiating what color we're painting our house. But in reality, um everything is a means to an end for the narcissist. And the end is always control. They don't really care what color the house is or if you're going to see a comedy or a thriller or if you're going to, you know, go to Vegas for Christmas or your family's house. It's not about the content It's about being able to have control They'd rather your house be painted in polka dots if later in the future They could blame you for it and get and make you feel guilty about it or whatever. It is uh, their strategy of control And so the narcissist narcissists are thinking very differently from us. We're trying to get understanding we're, we're we're trying to get on the same page. We're trying to kind of reach conclusions that meet both people's needs, whereas the narcissist, it's a means to an end. They're always making sure that their remote is working, that their remote for control and power is working, that the buttons that they're clicking are still getting the predictable response that they've conditioned. Uh, narcissists are like behavioral um, researchers. You know, they use intermittent reinforcements to condition their victims to respond in very conditioned ways, very predictable responses. And so we, we, we have to be really clear when we think we're negotiating with a narcissist not to get caught up in it, not to start uh, explaining ourselves, defending ourselves, um, uh, saying we're sorry, right? Trying to give in, give up. That The more that we engage with the narcissist, the more we're, we're feeding it. We're rewarding that behavior. Uh, the more we explain and defend and try to get understanding, the more empowered and in control the narcissist gets, especially if they could uh, click the buttons that make us have an emotional response. They feed off of our emotional responses. So the angrier we are, the more fearful we are, the especially guilt, the more guilty we feel, the more in power they feel, and, and the, the, the more in control they feel
2: narcissism is really hard to deal with for people. And I think for me, I find it really hard in professional settings and also in you know, anyone I've encountered personally. It's just a trait that's very hard. What are some suggestions you have? And I know you'll go into this in more depth in your workshop, um, but any thoughts around effective ways to respond to people who are narcissistic?
0: Well, I would like to cover one term, and then um, Abby may cover a bunch more, and perhaps even comment on this term. And I don't term. I don't know if you've heard it before, but there's a term called gray rocking. And essentially, what it is is you become a gray rock around the narcissist. You know, if you think about a gray rock sitting on the ground. Not having strong emotion, not re- overreacting or overresponding, just very steady. You don't say very much about yourself. So uh, you become a gray rock. You become uninteresting to the narcissist, essentially. So you can gray rock a narcissist. For instance, um, if you had a boss at work who was a narcissist, and the more you show your emotional self, the more they learn about how to manipulate you and how to be in control of you. So you just stay in that gray rock sort of flat position and it, you become boring to the narcissist, so to speak. So that's one thing that you can uh, do as a way to respond to narcissists.
1: Abby, do you want to add? Uh, yes. Uh, I think that gray rocking is, is basically underneath uh, all of the strategies that we're going to be teaching and the idea behind it is that we're, it's like if the if people who have a narcissistic personality are if, it, if there's a spectrum from zero to hundred of empathy, and they're on the lower end of the spectrum, uh, people who get entangled with narcissists they tend to be on the higher end of the spectrum. Uh, they tend to be hyper empathic, and so these two really connect. Uh, so often, for example uh, the uh, a person who has multiple relationships with with people with narcissistic personality disorder tends to have a self sacrifice schema, a subjugation schema, an abandonment schema, and a dependency schemas. So those are the main schemas of of that type of person, and what we want to help the hyper empathic person do um is become a little bit more of a gray rock is practice. Uh, a level of detached empathy, a kind of empathy without responsibility, where you can empathize with the person, but you don't lose yourself. You don't lose your sense of reality. You you, you stay connected with your own feelings and needs and not get caught up in the gaslighting and the fog and the vortex, basically, uh, that the narcissist creates. And so me and Robin are going to kind of describe our little formula for how to help Uh, people who are struggling in this type of relationship to practice a level of detached empathy and to identify and recognize all of the strategies that the narcissist uses, like derailing, changing the subject, not answering questions, belittling, triangulating. It goes on and on. But uh, we help you kind of label it and come back to your own requests, to your own needs, to your own feelings. And you can only do that when you're able to empathize with the other person without losing yourself, uh, without becoming so hyper uh, empathic uh, that you're starting to see yourself as the cause of the other person's feelings, thoughts, perceptions, behaviors, you, you, you learn to kind of empathize with them as an observer, as a witness, not as a person that is the cause of what's happening for them or, or trying to change it, but just coming back to yourself and your own requests. And creating very clear limits, boundaries, and self care consequences.
0: There's an example that I can give to kind of point to what Abby is saying in that, in this couple that I mentioned earlier, she is um, starting to blame herself for his affair. If I had only been more attractive, if I had only been more available, like, So you can see that his being in that victim stance is working and what we, right. Right. Exactly. And so she's like over empathizing with his pain and feeling guilty. And he's the one who's had the affair, right? So what we would want her to do is to come back to empathize with his pain, but to come back and be able to be in a very solid place about who she is what her needs are i need you to not have an affair i need you to um be a good partner to me and let's talk about what that means and i'm going to be centered and stay responsible for myself instead of assuming the responsibility for you and blaming myself for your affair so Correct. bringing that what what she owns is hers and what he what he did is his and help her see the pain that's okay but not get into a place where she's now um, th- thinking that she did something wrong.
2: A solid, like a boring old gray rock, right? <laughs> yes.
0: And when he, when he keeps coming to her and complaining about how much pain he's in now that he's realized that he's hurt her because of this affair and how awful it is for him to have to suffer the guilt of how much he's hurt her Just hear him, you know, trying to find the remote control button again, get back in control of her. And so he's demonstrating all this emotion. I love you. You're the only woman for me. There's, uh, but by the way, I think that he hasn't left this other woman. He's just saying these things to get back in control in the relationship with his wife.
1: And and I think the really important part of this too, Robin, is that we really see that um, the, a, a narcissistic relationship is like a, a dance macabre, right? It is a system that gets maintained by two people. So uh, this is a really great example you just gave of DARVO, right? Deny, attack, and reverse victim offender, right? So now the offender becomes the victim, and the only way that this strategy works is actually through the process of some form of projective identification where the victim actually does identify with this. So if the victim identifies with this and takes on the responsibility and accountability and over overempathizes, um, then that victim is then kind of uh, rewarding or reinforcing these strategies, these gaslighting strategies. They're making it workable.
2: hmm So it really, it is kind of that... Um dynamic that develops between the two people and when you're dealing with a narcissist you have to kind of think about your own contribution to that dynamic and a more effective way to deal with them because um, it sounds like you know this, it just makes me my heart heavy to hear about this cycle and people getting kind of trapped in that and so it's helpful to have some concrete strategies I think for what to do if you find yourself in that place or if you're trying to help someone who is if you're a therapist or someone you know is in a cycle like that.
1: Right, well, I think what's what's very interesting is that once you start helping uh, the victim or the purpose the person who uh, is susceptible to gaslighting, once you help them understand what gaslighting is and identify it and recognize all of the different ways it occurs, what's interesting is it's kind of like a light switch goes off. And once that light switch goes off, those strategies become obsolete. It's like once that light switch goes off and you get the function of these behaviors and the purpose and how the narcissist uses these, Um, there's no turning it back off. Uh, You start actually really seeing um, uh, what's happening and how it works. And then you're able to combat it in a much more effective and strategic way.
2: By the way... Just remember the gray rock. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: by the way, it can be a little bit challenging. Like if I, you know, continue on with this case, one of the things that the client said is, the male client in the partnership, oh, I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to get better. And both the therapist and the client, uh, the other, the female client in this example can be fooled by that. I'm going to go and really understand what's wrong with me.
1: Right. But then right. they go
0: to therapy and they take the, they learn from the therapist how to better manipulate. So right.
1: those
0: are like, this is a, it's not a, when the light switch goes on, you really got to start looking for all the ways in which the partner or your friend or your boss, whoever it is, and you, can, you need to decide whether you want to stay in that relationship in the first place. But then you can start looking at um, how you can just hold very firm against those behaviors that are, um, you know, making you responsible instead of them being responsible.
2: Well, this leads to a question that might we might kind of use to wrap up the interview here, which is about therapists working with narcissists, because I find that often people who are high, at least on overt narcissism, maybe not seeking therapy because they don't really think that there's they need it. They don't maybe think that they they have a problem and I, and I think in general they can be really hard to engage in therapy, hard to treat. Uh what are your thoughts about when narcissists can be helped in therapy and when they can't be? Um go ahead. Honey. I should think it's
0: I... a great question and um with their, my sort of take on it is that the closer they are on that continuum to sociopathy, the harder it is to help. Uh, you know, they may not be in the therapy room; uh, they could be, but uh, I think the the less likely it is to be able to make change. Abby, do you want to add to what I'm sh- what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. W- what I will add is that there are many different ways to assess the person's capacity for change. Um, first, I want to say that uh, you're right, Debbie. Uh, it's, it's rare that, that a person with overt, grandiose narcissism will come into therapy for n- no reason, like uh, of their own volition. Often you'll see them either in couples therapy or you'll see the victim by himself or herself Or you'll see a a person with narcissistic personality disorder coming into therapy because uh, they're about to be fired or their partner's about to leave. So they do come into therapy, but often it's to prove a point to somebody else, not really to work on themselves. And so you are assessing their capacity for change. Somebody who just scores high in entitlement or has some narcissistic traits uh, is able to change their behaviors or even gain some empathy um, the higher you are on the spectrum uh, the less likely it is that you can change or that or, or it's more likely that you could change your behaviors as opposed to actually uh, develop warm empathy. Uh, What's what me and Robin are going to discuss in our webinar is how to use nonviolent communication to be able to start testing out the other person's capacity for empathy because in a nonviolent communication we express very soft emotions and we express our needs and there is a way to evaluate and be able to tell Uh, whether our soft emotions will be influencing the other person or whether it's more behavioral consequences that are influencing the other person. So the more that you engage in nonviolent communication, the more that you keep your requests very, very specific and you clarify for yourself the needs that are non-negotiable, it's very interesting how it unfolds because rather than being in the content of things, you're able to step into the process and and really evaluate whether you're you're working with an active or proactive participant. Or whether the the other person is actually the opposite of that, and their agenda is not to be a, a proactive participant, but there is a we me and Robin will discuss our formula in our webinar, and it will give you a step by step protocol for how to assess uh, whoever you're interacting with the level of influence and their capacity for empathy.
2: okay, so you'll you'll delve deeper into it in your webinar, but basically if someone's not showing any signs that they're willing to to meet the other person's needs or to change anything, then you have a tough <laughs> situation on your hands. It sounds or, like,
1: or, or if they're agreeing to it and they're saying, sure, no problem. And then later they go, I didn't say that, or that's not how it happened or <laughs> right. Um, then you know that you're not having a proactive participant, but there is,
0: if they're gas, gas—you yeah. know that they're gaslighting you,
1: <laughs>
0: <You're> <laughs> they're right. gaslighting you
2: again. Yeah. Good to know, okay. Well, this conversation is—I'm finding it a little chilling, and helpful, and <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> and I think you're right. That I mean, and the reason this is so important is because I think the more you have awareness of it, and you can take st- take a step back and see it for what it is, the more you're able to to effectively deal with it. And think- and that, um, and that we all have a capacity to
1: start kind of disconnecting from our own empathy what the the more that we feel um afraid and the more that we feel paranoid right like in what, what's happening in the world um it's very important for all of us to stay kind of connected to our warm empathy or to be able to kind of have i guess flexible empathizing right mm-hmm. and not completely detach and become uh, just disconnected and, and, and not right like we could all lose our empathy when we're going on Facebook and you could see from one moment to the next people being imprisoned and then people you know and then Advertisements and all of this that we get inundated with that. We, we all uh, our society in general can become very narcissistic and um, The anecdote is is empathy is connection is interconnectedness, right? and being able to uh, empathize with others and and wish them well, uh, but without taking responsibility and accountability for them.
2: Exactly. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. I hope folks will check out your webinar who are interested in learning a lot more about this topic. Abby, would you mind giving our listeners some details about the webinar?
1: It's going to be both a live webinar, so it will be live on August 18th, at 10 a.m. and at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And there will be three CE credits available. It's a three-hour workshop and we'll also be recording it. So anybody that registers for the workshop can also just view the recording of it at a later time.
2: Is it for people who are in the mental health field or anyone, or what's, what's your audience for this?
1: We, we're gearing it specifically towards mental health professionals okay. that are helping clients that are struggling with narcissistic abuse. Um, but anybody is welcome to the webinar. And if you've been in a relationship with a narcissist or you have a, a boss who's a narcissist, I think anybody can benefit from it.
2: And where can people find that if they're interested? Where do they look online to find the details? We'll link to it on our show notes, but just in case anybody's out there looking for it,
1: they can find it at either bayareacbtcenter.com, so in bayareacbtcenter.com under CE credits for therapists, or they could go directly to the schemact website, which is s c h e m a c t.com.
2: Great. And we, again, we'll link to it on, the, on our show notes for today on the Psychologist Off the Clock webpage. So hopefully you can find it one of those ways if our conversation today sparks an interest and you'd like to learn more. Thank you very much for coming on. It was really wonderful talking to you. Thanks for having us, Debbie. Yes. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is
3: www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.